Whilst you're waiting for the next episode of Travel, Food and Booze, have a listen to an episode of our previous podcast, Our Lives in Italy. Welcome to the next episode of Our Lives in Italy podcast, where we talk to famous people who also love Italy as much as us. Today's guest is the master of sourdough himself, Dan Leopard. So I think it's one of the most um, Instagrammed, if that's a word, um, plates of food on Instagram. I think it's the St. John's Eccles cake. Is it true that you had you had a hand in devising and making that? Oh, absolutely, because there wasn't anyone else to. <laughs> <It's just me. laughs> absolutely, you, you were the pastry but... section. <laughs> Good morning, welcome to the next episode of our Lives in Italy podcast, and our very very special guest this morning is Dan Leopard. Good morning, Dan. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you, Craig. Uh, uh, excited to. Ah, just to talk to other other people. The uh, there's been so much silence over the last twelve months, which I've enjoyed. But um, it's it's really good to feel that things are beginning to get back to normal. I obviously came across you sort of earlier on because I'm a bit of a fanatical bread baker. Things you know, through your books like Baking with Passion and The Handmade Loaf. Um, but I think it's sort of safe to say that you've, you've not always been in the food industry and been a baker. Uh, this is true. I mean, I, I must add, I, I'm very old. So <laughs> when you're very old, you've often done lots of things. Because <laughs> I was thinking even my first book, Baking with Passion, came out, what, 22 years ago, 23 years ago? So yeah, was, exactly. And that was kind of, I'd, I'd been baking for not quite a decade, but but getting on for that before that. But before that, uh, I had uh, other lives. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was when I was about was 17, 18, I wanted to be in the theatre. I wanted to be an actor. Okay. So, so I uh, auditioned. I got a part in a production that Cameron McIntosh was doing in, in Australia called Oliver. And just to just a lowly part, but I, I could I could sing and I could jump about, and that seemed to be important. And then that got me my equity card. I came to London and then joined Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat, and toured with that. Uh, so um, yeah, yeah, that that was my my beginning. Mm, so you ended up in London. So. Um, did you sort of continue with your acting career then, or did did sort of things sort of veer off a little after that? Yeah, they kind of went put after that. <laughs> kind of, kind of, you know, it's okay to. You know, I, I, there's there's certain jobs or certain things that you do well when you're young, or you think you do well when you're young. But maybe I I I'm not sure I had the the um, the talent or the legs for it to to go any further. I, I did. I had fun on two shows, but I got a sense that it wasn't what I wanted to do. And possibly it wasn't what um, uh, producers and directors wanted me to do either. <laughs> so, <laughs> so maybe sort of half pushed, possibly. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. But something I had done when I was at high school, I, I was always interested in photography and I, I developed pictures and I um, uh, had a plate camera, and which is sort of like a sheet you put in single sheets of film to take photos so okay. probably completely unimaginable for any young person listening today i'm, I'm, then, I'm not i'm not young dan i know what okay. you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> and i i back in in fact a, a connection with italy back in um probably about 
1978, 9, 79, I, as a teenager, I got a scholarship to go from Australia to the north of Italy. Mm-hmm. And there I met uh, an Italian fashion um, um, uh, editor, but also I- icon called Anna Piaggi. And Anna Piaggi was the, uh, uh, I think, fashion editor at Italian Vogue, who had been this this, this very important person at Italian Vogue. And mm. she had left to start up her own magazine called Vanity, uh, using an American illustrator, Antonio Lopez, who was quite big at the time. And, and it was just at the kind of tail end of disco. And it was uh, marvelous, marvelous. It, uh, the, um, it was a combination of illustration and, and, and wild photography. And I, seeing them do that uh, just blew my mind because I was this teenager from, I think it's fair to say, a fairly plain suburb in outside of Melbourne. <laughs> and I just saw another world. In fact, every when you go to Italy, you see another world. But then to, to see that, I just thought, well, maybe my life could be different. So when I was touring with the shows, I continued to take photos. And then afterwards, I thought, well, why don't I go back to Italy and see if I could get some work? So I went with a friend who who had a little uh, fashion shop in um, uh, uh, in Islington, kind of, kind of in Islington. And we drove across from, well, we went on the ferry, took the, took the car across and drove across to Milan. And oh, he God. had an appointment at Italian Vogue. And I just lied and said I had one too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we did. And I had this portfolio of pictures um, that, I don't know. I really like them. I, I, I really think whenever you're starting in something, the best place to start is to just be really proud of what you, you've, you've done and what you're doing. And I was. So I showed them the pictures and they loved them. And um, the editor-in-chief and an editor there, uh, Mariuccia Casadio, who I'm still in contact with on Instagram, which is lovely, mm-hmm. um, uh, 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 gave me what was like like 30 pages and said go off and photograph all these people in London and I came back to London Uh, again I need to say to listeners this is in the days before internet this is in the days before even mobile phones or anything like that so Mm. what I would do I had was a sheet of paper that had all these names and telephone numbers so I'd go to the the um the uh you know telephone on the street with my um, 10p and 20p pieces and I'd put them in and I'd call, leave messages. Although, actually, yes, maybe leave messages, but not everybody had answer machines. It was all, I think I had to keep calling. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, even even the days before answering machines. but Yeah, it was all kind of, kind of crazy. But out of that, I, um, I met lots of fashion people and that sort of got me started working for English Vogue for Tatler for uh, doing campaigns for for Mulberry, for Selfridges, for Debenhams. For, um, and I became, for a short time, a big kind of photographer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's um, I'm still friends with some of the people from that time. Uh, Roger Saul, who founded Mulberry Fashion House, also much later founded Sharp and Park Spelt mill i don't know if you've heard yeah. of shop and park mm-hmm. and so so we talk about the old days um, <laughs> <laughs> and how we're doing different things so so you know just just being able to have those conversations is is really good it ties it all together for me yeah so, so the, 
parallel lives and you just still end up meeting as you're going down down the path of life as well so yes very much and then i um i it got to about sort of 1991 and i i was uh, living in soho uh in in london and um yeah about yeah 1991 and i would eat at this restaurant called Alistair Little's, which was in Frith Street. I was living in Dean Street. It's one of the parallel streets mm. to it. And uh, I'd always read the, the cookbooks behind the bar that he had there um, because I'd eat on my own. There we are. There we are. <laughs> I'd be there on my own. Well, no, sometimes with the kind of little entourage, but, but often on my own. And uh, Alistair said to me, you could always try cooking. And he says now that he said that thinking I would try it one, one day and give up. And I started on the pastry section and that's where I stayed pretty much. Yeah. So. Mm, so sort of that, that was your journey in the pastry section. Mm. I think, I think sort of you're know, reading your history. I think there's sort of, there's, there's quite a lot of sort of elements of sort of happenstance in your, yes. in your life, just where you're sort of, you're in the right place at the right time. So I think you'd, you've um, you met people like, for example, um, I think one of the famous ones, Fergus Henderson as well. I think you worked with him at one point. Yes, I, um, I, the way we met, uh, um, I, I, I think we possibly met around that time. But then, what I after, after I um, started at Alistair Little's after about a year, I thought, oh, I've had enough. I've gone a bit crazy. And, and I um, ended up going to America uh, for a couple of years, which I'm happy to go into. But then when I came back, it was in 1994, about August, July, August, I arrived back. I had no money. I was staying on, 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 in a bedroom or the sofa of a friend, Flan Flanagan, uh, who mm and I needed a job. So I went back to Alistair Little's and they said to me, oh, darling, darling, no work here. This is uh, the <laughs> chef, Jeremy Lee, who still speaks like this. Jeremy, he, Jeremy, bless him. Yes, I Jeremy. <laughs> And he said, oh, darling, why don't you go down to the French house? I hear they're opening something very dismissively. Um, so I went to the French house, which is a pub mm -hmm. uh, down in, um, in Soho. I can't remember the street. And they said, yes, our, our, our chef Fergus Henderson and Margot Henderson are opening up a, a place in, uh, in Smithfield. Why don't you go and see them? So I went there and they said to me, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be sous chef. And they said, well, you can't. We have a sous chef, Paul Hughes, mm -hmm. uh, who I'm still friends with and, he, and together with his wife, wife Mina, a, a lovely lovely friends but then i suppose i saw him slightly as competition i said well then i'll be pastry chef <laughs> pastry <laughs> chef and marg it was marga that said would you be interested in making bread and i said absolutely absolutely and again, you know yeah. and again you i was probably um how would you put it um i i had more enthusiasm than skill let's yes. just say okay <laughs> just yeah say. <laughs> so um and, but I, I just put my ass off. I, I um, went to the British Library every day to research old recipes before we, we'd open and sort of had this idea of making it, uh, making the pastry section at least a, a kind of British thing. It wasn't Fergus's intention to be British. It was more his intention to serve 
a kind of way of, uh, uh, sort of food and a kind of way of eating mm. that suited him. It was always about ingredients more than than uh, culture. Culture is that is that yeah. correct? Maybe. Yeah, sort of. There wasn't a theme to it. It was more sort of the provenance of the ingredients that was important. Hmm. Very much. Very much. And um, and how and and maintaining a kind of um, integrity from the ground to the plate. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is something that's curiously a big part of baking now today is about sort of not not really being in search of excellence so much as just trying to maintain flavors and, mm. and characteristics all the way through the process so um, um and then we opened and um it was it, it was amazing perhaps not um immediately amazing but it, it became amazing <laughs> yeah so I, one of the things that obviously st john's is famous for is i think it's one of the most um instagrammed if that's a word um plates of food on instagram i think it's the st john's eccles cake is it true that you had you had a hand in devising and making that oh absolutely because there wasn't anyone else to (laughs) (laughs) you you were the pastry section (laughs) i was the pastry section however i might say that it was i my recollection was that it was Perhaps a combination of of Trevor Gulliver, who who is is one of the owners of St John's, suggesting it, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I think Paul was at Paul Hughes was absolutely important in suggesting it. So there were, people would discuss ideas, so we were very much discussing it, but it was up to me to make it. So um, <laughs> because the pastry section, I decamped down into what was this is kind of smokehouse area, uh, a kind of well down there. Um, uh, and I talked um, Trevor into buying an, an oven, which I swear for at least 15 years later, he would always remind me that he bought this broken down <laughs> oven. It wasn't that expensive, but he always just said, I bought you an oven. Yes, he did. He bought me an oven. Um, uh, and um I put alcohol in it because I always do. Um, I don't think, you know. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't see there's a problem in that personally. <laughs> and I, I, and the other thing I do, I, I noticed Felicity Cloak in the Guardian was was giving me a poke about my lamington recipe. She felt was she liked it very much, but she felt it was a bit too rich. Mm. Um, uh, but all my foods are a little bit rich. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> just what i do yes um so so this was a very rich spicy boozy uh eccles cake in actually the the most unusual thing about it at that time was that it was in an all butter rough puff pastry Mm. whereas what the ones you bought were made of treks or you know um i remember there was one baker bakers who said to me not that long ago how do you how do you make pastry with butter <laughs> and I said, "Oh, oh, oh! What do you make it with?" <laughs> you know, just a little bit curious. He said, "Oh, I just use baker's fat, and you know, which um, I get, but you know, it, it bakery and good ingredients were a little bit separate at that time. And, and what I helped to bring about was was baker's um, using good ingredients. Mm. That was that was one of one of the things I'm most proud of is that I would always use." really good ingredients 
possibly yeah. costing a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> costing a lot of money, but then, but then the end product is just so, so, so much better. It, it's, it's better to have a little of something absolutely excellent than a lot of something which is a bit... Uh, I, I think so. I think so. And and I, th I always had a fascination with the ingredients, too. I think that that um, I, I, I'm I'm always dazzled by the work that goes into making different artisan ingredients, whether it be the butter or, or the flour, the milling, the the choice of grains, the growing, the time mm. of year. All of this is just extraordinary, really. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't think people actually yeah, sort of realise the the effort that goes into making the, the products that actually end up on their plate at the end of the day. You know, sort of, I mean, particularly, obviously, you know, it's, it's different in Italy, but particularly in Britain, they sort of see these cellophane wraps things in their supermarket and they, you know, they don't appreciate the effort that's, that's gone in beforehand. Oh, absolutely. And I think they, they worry about, they, they feel almost a sort of, uh, there's, there's, and immodesty, perhaps, in in caring too much about what goes into it. So, uh, and particularly with with uh, uh, British cooking, mm. uh, there's a I, I sense there's a sort of of, of uh, not fearfulness that that people feel very awkward if they're using very good ingredients to make traditional British dishes. Mm. That they feel it should be leftover or cheap or or scrap. Or something like that, and I, I maybe because I'm not British, I look mm. at British food differently, and I think, <laughs> well, why can't it be all made with really good things? Um, you yeah. know, I would, I would rather like, like back in in the the 1920s and 30s in Cornwall, you would you would get a a Cornish pasty made of brassicas, so there were things like a kind of kind of broccoli or cabbage within inside a pasty, and you know, yeah. this wouldn't be recognised. But how wonderful is that compared to, you know, cheap scraps of meat and, and yeah. potato? I, I would rather have, have gorgeous brassicas inside a Cornish pasty. Yeah, something something to make it a little bit more more exciting. I think, yeah, it, it's I think sort of British cooking sort of going in cycles at the moment because you have the you have the, the programs that appear on BBC and Channel Four, your Jamie Oliver's and your, your Hugh Fernie Whitting stalls. And that everybody then suddenly makes a, a grab for all the best ingredients, and then obviously then they look at their bank balance a few week, few months later, when the TV programs are finished, and then it just goes back to people just choosing, so the the cheaper and the lesser cuts of meat, for example. Yes, yes, yeah. I, I I hope that you're right. <laughs> that, yeah. that that's the way it's going. So you've been so you've been to Italy, been to London, to America, back to London again um being with with uh, with Fergus Henderson sort of helping in St John's um then sort of seems from what I've read before there seems to be a side trip to Japan involving marmalade well really quite recently I mean a lot recently probably just in the last um would it be three years yeah maybe three or four years uh my partner my husband David and I went to Japan sort of sort of by chance in about 2003 mm. possibly no 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 actually no it was it was post 2004 because i um i met up 
with this young baker there and she, and gave her a copy of or, or I, th I think or, or show, certainly showed her a copy of the handmade loaf my uh my book that came out in 2004 so it must have been after that mm. and we didn't we were on our way to australia and we didn't we, we were just stopping over there and perhaps we thought we wouldn't like it too um uh, my partner had 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 booked us into a an amazing what turned out to be an amazing hotel uh <laughs> and we were just I think we were maybe there for four days, five days, and we just had the best time, the mm. best food uh, we were. And, and so I think in my mind, I always wanted to go back and perhaps I was putting that out into the universe because um, uh, uh, my friend Jane Hazel McCosh, who, who has run for the last 15, 16 years now, uh, the world's original Marmalade Award up in Cumbria, which mm. gets thousands of entries from all over the world from from um, Georgia from um, Korea from uh, Lima from America from Australia all over the world people marmalade makers or uh, citrus preserve makers mm. make their jars and send them to us for judging and I've been um, a, a judge there almost since the beginning and head judge for many years now and it's it's um yeah, inspiring. But what turned out was that Japan has its own citrus fruit. It's got its own sort of yuzu and daidai and hundreds of of local uh, varieties of citrus fruit, and it 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 appealed to them. The other thing about Japan is that they love uh, well, not everybody in Japan, but many people in Japan love Britain. And there mm. aren't that many countries in the world that love Britain. So no, not, at gonna, <laughs> not at the moment. So we're going to hold on to them. <laughs> and anybody and everybody, please, please be our friends. But yeah. yes, absolutely. <laughs> but it's not that bad. You know? We didn't get all the money from colonialism. I think that maybe the people are imagining that, that all the, the little workers' houses have been paid for by the the the, the treasures stripped from other countries. But that's just not true. Um, <laughs> we didn't get any of it. We we stayed poor. Um, uh, so, so uh, through Jane's work, uh, Jane Hesemakosha's work with the uh, Japanese embassy, uh, together they were able to arrange for a marmalade festival in uh, the island of Shikoku in the prefecture of Ehime in this city called Yawatahama. Mm -hmm. And, okay. and uh, they have these terraces terraces built on the hillsides that all the citrus trees grow on so that the warmth of the sunlight bounces back from the walls on the terrace to hit the trees and um it's, it's just extraordinary Beautiful. yeah so imagine those terrace fields of rice that you see is it in china yeah. um well they ha in japan they have oranges sort of growing that way um Usually only about sort of the width of one tree deep because the the hills are it, it's a very rugged terrain in in Japan so so the hills are quite steep, uh, very steep, um, but it's beautiful. And even when you go there, so if I if we go there in May or June, because the blossoms are just starting to come out, the whole area smells of orange blossom. It's just oh, extraordinary, beautiful. And, and just beautiful. The people are lovely. It's just, it's just 
it's just lovely. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, so Japan was has been on my list of places to visit since well, God, God knows when. Um, you know, we were planning maybe to go for the Olympics. Obviously, that get cancelled, and then we yeah, had yeah COVID and all this sort of thing. But it you know, but now I've got that picture in my mind, and that's just um, you know just galvanized it. I will visit that place one day. Oh, you must do. You must do. I mean, do you, you know, from uh, even if you don't particularly want to go to Tokyo, you could fly directly into Osaka and then get trains and planes. And it's very uh, cheap to fly internally. Uh, cheap. You can fly internally cheaply really well mm. in Japan. So and you can get you can then get trains to see all sorts of places. It's it's really it, it's it's quite old fashioned in, in lots of ways. And that's really charming. Yeah, sort of. It yeah has that sort of unique charm about it as well. But no, as I say, that's definitely another one to add to the list. Then, so I mean, we've sort of touched on this earlier on as well. But so, what is it about baking and bread making that sort of resonates with you, Dad? Um, you know, at first, to be utterly uh, um, <laughs> frank with you, it was because no one else was doing it, mm. and I thought. Isn't it going to be easier to create um, a place for myself doing the thing that no one wants to do rather than doing the thing that everybody wants to do? Everyone was wanting to be a head chef. No one wanted to be a baker when I wanted to be a baker. Hmm. So I had no competition. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Um, and um, yeah, and, and it, for a long time, it was, it was kind of like that for that reason that it it wasn't perceived to have a glamour and it really i i would credit the internet for 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 getting people really excited about baking and particularly digital photography because mm. people were able to share not just their their successes but their failures and also all the steps in between mm. so uh, i i set up a, a baking forum on my website in i danleppard.com uh, this kind of sourdough forum which was at that time one of the first in the world um uh in 2003 and at first there were there weren't really photographs on the internet but soon as digital for digital cameras started to appear maybe maybe 2005 2004 mm. 2005 people were able to for for no cost take a snap of their picture and upload it to the forum. So we were able to see what people were doing. They were able to, to share their ideas with, with other cooks in a way that just had, hadn't been possible. Um, when I was baking, say back, you know, back at, at Alice a Little, say in 2001, two, um, I had no idea really what a focaccia looked like. I had no idea what a sourdough looked like. I had no idea. And um, book. Oh, the other thing too, books, books, cookbooks back then were a very expensive, mm. and b rarely contained many photos. Yeah, uh, or, so, or maybe, maybe if you were lucky, a line drawing, possibly. Yes, or something. <laughs> so, so um, um, we didn't really know what things were like. So it was all about inventiveness over authenticity because. Uh, we didn't know. We didn't. We didn't even know what we didn't know. <laughs> we didn't even know, we didn't, you know, I remember uh, Chef Juliette Peston saying that she wanted these cornmeal muffins made. This was back at Alistair's in 
and that were made at this place called the Fog City Diner in in San Francisco. Now, no one had been to San Francisco that we knew, and no one. So she she telephoned them, and they gave her a description of how they made them over the phone, and then we tried to kind of cobble together mm. what they were like. But we didn't know where we were going with the recipe. I think today, especially through Instagram, people have an idea of what the what they want their sourdough to look like, what they want their focaccia to look like, mm. their, their piadina or, or um, uh, pane di rosetta or whatever. They, they, they sort of know where they're going. Whereas back then we had no idea. Yeah. Um, and maybe that built our um, problem solving and, and um, imagination. Yeah, exactly. You didn't have the picture to compare it to at the end. So you, you had to work through it methodically. So to, to to get what you you consider to be the finished product as well, I mean, can it, you... I was just going to say, and even going back to when you're talking about the, the, the sort of happenstance of of my career, that also had its strengths too. That in order to, because you had to be in the right place at the right time. So it it was trying to also identify what the what and where the right place is, mm -hmm. and what what and when the what right time is you you're sort of just trying to work out as i do today where are things going what are things likely to be like in one month or three months often when i'm writing um, uh, recipes and articles for newspapers and magazines i'm thinking about a world in three months time or six months time so if i'm mm -hmm. writing a christmas recipe now i'm thinking about christmas this year and what because it isn't the same and it will mm -hmm. be different so so and tastes change um you know Possibly we're getting back to um, enjoying uh, classic British flavors in a way that we didn't. Uh, maybe maybe the Panettone peak <laughs> peak has gone down again. <laughs> it happened. I think if COVID hadn't have happened, we'd all be making Panettone everywhere. But I think it's it's exhausted everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's just like people just look at it and go, no, 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 no. I've got something else to be doing at the moment. I've I've had a few plays at Panettone myself. It's like mm, a little bit out of my skill range at the moment. It's a uh, let's just concentrate on loaves for the moment and maybe there are some things people should buy if i could just put a put a good word out for all the working bakers around the world um don't feel you have to make everything at home people you can buy things from bakeries and that's that's a good thing to do yeah exactly you know it's a, especially at the moment you know help that help the small producers definitely go in and get there there's some fabulous products out there but so can you can you remember your first ever loaf of bread that you made dan um, I, I probably can. I don't think I baked bread at home. I baked, um, hot cross buns at school, um, mm. in, uh, very early on in, um, sixth grade, fifth grade. So what were we sort of nine or 10? Um, uh, and I had this extraordinary teacher in hindsight, because she, she would add a crushed ascorbic acid tablet vitamin C tablet to it because she said it made the hot cross buns lighter. Now, I don't know where she learned that. So this is back in, um, uh, I, I was born in 64. So in, back in 74, when I look in cookbooks from 74, there's no mention of adding ascorbic acid to, to um, bread dough. So fascinating. And this was out in the suburbs in, in Australia. So um, I, I think too that injected a a fascination with the the science of baking into me 
Mm. So that happened at the same time. But it, um, but I, I was definitely making bread while I was a photographer. Um, I, my friend Gina Portman, I was, I, I, I uh, was renting a room from her back in. This would be back in uh, 1995, maybe mm. six. And I would um, um, make bread dough and then I'd fill up the, the bath, a quarter fill with water and then sit the mixing bowl inside it. So that, and this was one of those big old British iron baths <laughs> with the mixing bowl set in it. Um, I don't think we even had cling film. I don't think, I think to be covered now. And, and it would just sort of warm up. And um, yes, I'm still friends with Gina and yes, but that that those were the first loaves that I remember making. Yeah. Uh, so you obviously you you know you've you've got a library of books yourself. You obviously start off as you said baking with passion onto the handmade loaf and then short and sweet etc. Are there any sort of particular sort of people that you admire in the culinary world or any sort of cookbooks that you can be without? Well, on on the admiration when I think back to. When Elizabeth David was writing English Bread and Yeast Cookery, uh, she would research that at the old British Library, which used to be, um, it's where the courtyard kind of was in the, the British Museum now. Mm. And this is before a digital time. So in order to, to cross-reference things, she would, you would, she would go to a card catalog, find the card, then read the book, mm find references within the book, then find those again. So when I look at all of the research within English bread and yeast cookery, it's just astonishing. And I, uh, there are many old, old books that, that fall under, under this umbrella of just being extraordinary hard work to put together. And mm. I, I think I do admire them because again, today in this internet age, it is, you know, I can sit here in, a, in my chair and research things, but back then it was about having to be in the right place, go to the right library, go to the right, you know, um, uh, speak to the right person. So, so much respect for the older books, uh, new books. Um, uh, well, there were the groundbreaking books. I think that Richard Bertonet's book was completely groundbreaking because it, 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 it added a kind of sexiness and love in, into French baking, which didn't really exist before, before him. I think that um, Maggie Glazer's, um, Glazer? Glazer's um, Artists and Baking Across America framed baking in this uh, very seductive light and also gave recipes that for the time were reasonably complicated and you didn't really see um, complex bread recipes like you do today. I mean, today, mm. today people will brush away a simple bread recipe. Give me the complex one. <laughs> Give me the one that has four different steps before we mix the dough, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <Do that>. Give <laughs> me something that means I won't see my friends for a week yes. and a half. But <laughs> they're, they're, kind of, it's, they're kind of bro baking books, aren't they? They sort of make it as complicated as you possibly can for me. That's then I'm really, really into it. Um, and, and, you know, uh, tip hat to, to Chad at, 13, his book absolutely did that. Yes. <laughs> absolutely did that. <laughs> it was it was long and complicated. And that was part of the 
the buzz about it and and the bread was great and the bread is amazing at the end of it um i think too when you're thinking of great books you've got to think of them also within their time and even mm. um um books that maybe don't seem so good now sort of had a place in in um turning turning the wheel uh, i'm very proud to have been part of that like when um baking with passion came out there hadn't been a book in britain that celebrated a british bakery at that time and did mm. it in this this bold sexy way it was it was absolutely groundbreaking and widely imitated after then when the handmade loaf came out in 2004 uh, what i really tried to do was to show it was to talk about artisan grain and artisan milling and farming and show how how we are part of as bakers part of an ecosystem that mm. goes from the soil to the table um, rather than i think other books at the time which were about processed high, high, highly refined flowers and making happy bread i wasn't ma about making happy bread i was mine was kind <laughs> of about making making almost like hessian bread yeah bread that that, that you noticed yes because it, it's <sighs> roughness or it's uh it's uh coarseness or it's it's um attitude yeah exactly it's it i think to use sort of a, a yorkshire phrase where i'm from it's a bread that had a heft to it i mm. think you know had some substance to it rather than the, the the flabby sort of supermarket loaves that you sometimes get these days i mean one of my particular favorite ones as you said with you know taking into account what you said about the, the research and the effort that went into to making it is um carol field's book the italian oh. baker yes absolutely and even though you know, so there's there's many things I'd question now. I think it was Carol Field that said that the holes in bread came from olive oil, and, me, and we believed they did. I mean, we yeah. thought, well, Italy olive oil hole. I mean, we we kind of we added added it up that way. But it also uh, absolutely stirred, uh, ignited an interest in Italian bread around the world. Yeah. So it's, it's as I said, it, it's it was of its time, and obviously, yeah, I've got the revised version on my on my bookshelf, and I'm. Um, happily making my way through it as well. Maybe, maybe with more mistakes than successes, but you know, it's <laughs> all you about. Know the, the other thing it did too, thinking about it, it also put a rocket up the asses of so many French bakers. It really did, because suddenly we said the best breads in Italy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that, that, just, that upset lots of people. But but you know, we live in this world of baking. I see extraordinary. Um, breads uh, of, a, of a Japanese style in Japan. There's, uh, I think, Australia is developing its own kind of bread identity, as as America already has. Uh, mm. So, uh, and then, uh, you know, when I was talking about uh, panettone out of Malaysia, you're starting to see extraordinary panettone mm. made with durian and all sorts of things. Um, yeah, really exciting. It's good. Yeah, it's. it's... As you said, putting a, putting a rocket up the backside of the French bakers. Sorry, Richard. So we sort of touched on it earlier on in, in the podcast as well, but you sort of, you've had experience of, of Italy in, in Milan. So what, what other places have you visited in Italy, Dan? Have you ever been down to Calabria or is it sort of more uh, north? No, I, um, uh, as a photographer, I was in Rome for a while photographing the, the, the um, uh, the director, um, oh, what, 
I've forgotten his name, the most famous Italian director. Fellini? Uh, Federico Fellini. Yes, yes. Um, uh, at, uh, he was at the Dino De Laurentiis studios. And I remember, um, I remember a little bit about the, about the food then, because I went for a, a kind of staff meal with the, the cinematographer and, and Fellini. And they did a ragu alla bolognese that, that I'd never had. I'd never had, you know, that, um, and maybe served with polenta, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> possibly. Possibly. It was all uh, brand new to me, brand new. I'd never had, my, my mother would make a kind of uh, Italian mince, <laughs> kind yes. of, which was lovely. But I think uh, maybe, yeah, maybe it had dried oregano, but this was quite a different thing. So I remember that. Um, then later in the 90s, I mean, uh, to Sardinia, to, to uh, Sicily, to, um, well, so a lot of time in Turin, yeah. Um, mm, I uh, love Turin. Turin yes. is a gorgeous place. Uh, a friend, uh, Tony Vitiello, had, had a, a little um, kind of delicatessen that was there back in um, 1998, possibly, 88, 89, I... I went out to see what slow food were doing mm -hmm. uh, with with a friend wendy fogarty who'd set up the chapter of slow food in in britain and we went out and had this amazing time together and she said look why don't you try and do something out here so i planned to come back and i think it was in 2000 or 2001 i, I talked the flower advisory bureau and marriages flower into paying for us to a group of bakers from Britain to go and bake at the Salone de Gusto there. And, yeah. uh, and ITV uh, made a little kind of kind of segment of a documentary about us. And I was able to talk the food program on Radio 4 in making a pro whole program about us. I, I don't yeah. know how I did that. <laughs> anyway, but... Happenstance uh, again, Dan. <laughs> well, it's also about just give it a go. Yeah. <laughs> just give it a go. You may fail, but just yeah. have a go. <laughs> just do that. Don't, don't worry about failing. Worry about doing. And yes, yeah, so we went out there. And in some ways, it was a complete disaster. Um, but... Uh, but it was it was a pretty magical time, and the bakers like Matt Jones from, who who who's, has bread ahead now. Um, there was uh, Math, uh, uh, Manuel, who who is is the is he the teacher now? Is he teaching at Bread Ahead? But Manuel mm -hmm. was there, who who took over at the bakery at St John after me. Um, uh, um, just a great team. I think there, there were, oh, there was um, Dan de Gustavus came out for a mm -hmm. bit, um, and we we had a week of of. We'd, I I found this bakery, and talked them into letting us have their bakery for the week, <laughs> um, <laughs> the way you do, and um, and uh, that it was it was and Jeffrey Steingarten, the the American food writer, came to see us. Uh, with Henrietta Green, um, and yeah, we just had the the best time, the best best time. Um, there's uh, if any, what I'll try and do, I'll send you some links of because mm. uh, the Independent newspaper also wrote about us. Oh, and I talked um, the food editor of the Independent to come with us on this trip, so he he wrote a big article on it, and yeah, really good. Yeah, it'd be good. I mean, it does be interesting to read, and definitely, obviously, for, for people looking at the, um, the the notes for the podcast as well. That's something else for them to to sort of fill in the blanks as well. But good. Yes. 
Um, I mean, you've, you've sort of listed my favourite places in Italy. I mean, we're incredibly lucky where we are. I mean, I'm, I'm on a hill just outside, um, well, near Reggio Calabria, so I can see the sea and then I can see Sicily from, from, um, from my living room window and see Mount Etna. And in a week's time, I will be back in Sicily. Should be good. Looking through, looking, going around Catania and possibly doing a tour around there as well. So let's let's just finish off with just a, a couple of fluffy questions, just to finish off the podcast. Now that I've grilled you about your history and your life from from birth to here, but if thinking thinking about your perfect kitchen, Dan, what what three things in your kitchen could you not be without? Could be ingredients, equipment, could be anything. Okay, the first thing, actually, off the top of my head, the first thing is a window onto the garden. In fact, yes. this also applies to my perfect bakery. I have seen bakeries that have windows that look out onto fields or onto gardens. I, it, the bread's better. <laughs> the bread yeah. is better if everyone can see outside. The food, yeah. the cooking is better. So, so I think in my perfect kitchen has a window onto a garden or onto, onto a world. Um, the second thing is it's got to be... I, I think it, it also has to be a kind of storeroom and where spices, where ingredients, where, where a collection of, of um, inspiring things can be kept. Because sometimes good cooking can't be planned for. Sometimes mm. you need a, a degree of spontaneity. And to be able to walk into a, a cupboard or a storeroom and have... I know, different beans, different dried beans and pulses to have um, uh, different spices, different flowers. I, I, I have so many flowers. I love them all. <laughs> I love them all equally. It's like, <laughs> but, it's like, like choosing your favorite child, Dan. But, yeah. Yes, yeah, the, my pets. <laughs> my different sourdoughs and things. Yeah, I love them all. Um, uh, that and that. And I think... Um, Ah, oh, it's got to be space, really, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bread making, take and baking takes up space. It it just does. I this I what I although what I've learned in Japan is that you can do a lot more in a lot less space, and it's it's made me feel very privileged to have the space I have even here mm. now. A great, lovely kitchen here. Um, but uh, yeah, space is if you can have space in a kitchen, it's just lovely. Yeah, I think, as you said, sort of spontaneity, that would be one thing that I would want to add to my perfect kitchen as well. My wife can just open up the kitchen cupboards and go, right, we're having this, 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 this and this, where I'm just sort of a bit more, maybe, maybe a too scientific, too methodical, maybe. Okay, so if you if you could go out and have any meal you want, what would you choose? What would I choose to have? Um, uh, oh, I, the food in Japan. Um, there was never a meal that I didn't enjoy. I, mm. Even if the food, there was only like once or twice where the food wasn't quite right, but I still enjoyed the dining and the meal. So, so yeah, absolutely to go back to Japan. And um, yeah, it's probably based on countries. I'd like, I, I think I've, I took traveling to Australia for granted and I would love to go back. I would like, I, I, was planning to go back a lot and wish I did. And then I third, um, oh, I think I have been thinking when we were talking about those times in Italy, and I would like to revisit some of those meals with friends in Italy because um, 
not not just because of the food, just because there was a a lightness of spirit that I I miss mm. too. So so I think what's tying them all together is is the the spirit of of good eating. Yeah, it is basically it's not just the food; it's the atmosphere yeah. and and everything else behind it. But well, if you and your husband do ever come back over to Italy and you make your way down here, the doors open. Feel oh, free to visit. <laughs> and maybe. We'll, yeah, we'll we'll point you in the right direction. You know, with the doors always open for for everybody. You know, I've I've become very very Italian that way. Okay. Uh, but as as for, just to finish off, then Dan. So what's I mean, we're sort of heading towards the end of the year now. But what are your plans for the end of the year? Well, I don't know what the world's going to do. <laughs> yes, yeah. I've had I've had plans all the time. <laughs> I've still got plans. <laughs> and you think, oh, I wonder what's coming up. Are we going into lockdown? Are we? Who, who knows? It is so. It is absolutely about spontaneity right now. So, so uh, thinking about the future. I mean, I, I I've been there. There was talk of of being in Japan in in October, November. Uh, I would mm. like that to happen, but it's the, looking. Oh, I don't know. Maybe it will happen. I, I, I honestly can't tell. Um, uh, I probably won't get back to Australia till next year, so it won't be that. Um, so if I'm here, uh, we were funnily enough, we were talking about Christmas dinner um, because my my husband and I have been together since 1998. So we've had many, many, many Christmas dinners together. Mm-hmm. Um, we were trying to think. We 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 might revisit our Peking duck christmas dinner and, <laughs> and make little bow buns for that because that was a pretty good one <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was very good. but it, whatever we do whatever it holds it will it will probably have some sort of silliness and spontaneity to it because you need it yeah and i think it especially need it in in the times that we are at the moment but Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Dan. You've been an absolutely fabulous guest. It's been more than a pleasure talking to you. And as I said earlier on, if you make your way over to Italy, you know, let me know and we'll, we'll meet up and we'll show you around. Oh, that's it's brilliant. Thank you so much. It's, no. it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, been a, been a pleasure talking to you as well, Dan. Have a fantastic weekend. Okay. <laughs> Take All care. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks to Dan for being a wonderful guest. Take a look at the show notes for links to the various stories we talked about. Our next guest in two weeks' time is Anthony Warner, British chef, food writer, and the author of the Angry Chef blog and books. If you like what you've listened to, please review, comment, and maybe rate us five stars to spread the word. Please also subscribe so you get your next podcast the minute it comes out. Allora dopo!